Welcome to the Future of Supply Chain, where each episode we'll sit down with entrepreneurs, investors, and industry veterans to discuss innovation, technology, and the most exciting opportunities in trucking and logistics as we build the future of supply chain together. Be sure to head over to podcast.dynamo.vc to keep up to date with our latest content or subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice. Now, let's get into the show. Here's our host, Santosh Sankar. Hey, ladies and gents, welcome back to the Future Supply Chain Podcast. I'm your host, Santosh Sankar. And joining me today is Craig Fuller, Freight Alley himself, CEO, co-founder of Freight Waves. Welcome, Craig. Hey, Santosh. How are you doing, man? I'm well. I'm well. We, uh, we're, we're living in, uh, in kind of weird times, but uh, fortunate to say everybody's healthy and happy. So things are good. How about yourself? Uh, likewise. Um, you know, you and I are from the same city or live in the same city, so... Um, we've, uh, I think it's, it's interesting being in Chattanooga, uh, away from, we have the ability to spread out here. And so, uh, I think it's been, it's been nice. It's also a great outdoor city, as you know, uh, to sort of get out and have family. You're, you're not having to deal with sort of a highly dense urban environment, which I think in a COVID world is, is helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I agree. And, you know, uh, kind of leaning into that point, you know, you, you just recently closed, um, a fresh round of funding here that you announced last week. So congrats. Um, and you've, you made this decision and you're the one who championed the term freight alley and everybody now uses it. And I'd be curious, how did you come up with that? Like what, what was that process where you said, Hey, this is how we could really plan a flag and, and put a moniker onto Chattanooga's strength? You know, I think, you know, Santosh, you and, and the folks at Dynamo actually deserve some credit for this. I won't take full credit uh, for the foundational uh, part of what, what we would call as Freight Alley. Uh, certainly, we'll take some credit for coining the term, but the sort of the concept is that you have this highly high concentration of folks in logistics uh, uh, in Chattanooga on a per capita basis, there's more uh, people dedicated to logistics than there is in anywhere else in the country. And I think, um, I think it's a, a pretty powerful thing for a midside city to have this high concentration of, of resources available in town, uh, as well as some businesses. And I think, you know, it was, it was interesting. I had, um, I'd been fired by my dad, uh, from, uh, 2014 It sold a business to us bank. We held on to a, part of the processing business. And so my father ended up firing me in 14. And I, you know, getting fired by your dad is pretty demoralizing. Uh, so I, I escaped from Chattanooga to, to Texas. And I, when I first started thinking about starting freight waves, um, I, I was in Dallas. I was in this sort of, you know, really successful city that was uh, attracting a lot of businesses, but there didn't seem to be any, any sort of common theme. And I read this article where, uh, Ted Ailing, um, uh, and Barry and, and Alan had sold Access America and, and at the time had emerged with Coyote and then Coyote had sold to UPS. And, and in that sort of same period of time, they had taken what was a uh, early stage uh, uh, venture fund, not real formalized, uh, uh, called Lamppost Group and it converted it into what is we now know as Dynamo. And you had joined the team and helped found Dynamo. And I, I thought it was interesting because if you look at the investments that uh, the team had been making prior, they were very sort of, it was, it was a much more shotgun approach to uh, venture investing. But when I saw that article where you had these really successful entrepreneurs that had effectively two successful exits, even though they were same entity had sold, had sold twice and had brought in professional uh, uh, investor like yourself, but they were focused on this concept of, of logistics tech or freight tech or supply chain tech. I thought that was really interesting and, and quite brilliant, frankly. And I was a little bit jealous that I was on the outside looking in. I'm sitting in Fort Worth um, doing some day trading unsuccessfully and I'm watching you guys <laughs> have all the fun. And it, it struck me that, that that moment was a chance for Chattanooga to do something different because I was on the outside looking in at the lamppost group, but not really inspired by it in the sense that I didn't understand why that would be different than a lot of funds out there. But when I saw the dynamo thing, I thought that was literally the most brilliant thing I'd ever seen. 
And I was, and then I went on my own journey. I sat down, I actually had met you the day you and I met was the day was the weekend. I'd come to Chattanooga to visit family and I, I ended up visiting with Ted. And then I, I, I met you for the first time and you guys, yep. it was your first cohort and you were sort of getting things going at Dynamo. And um, after that conversation, I left and I'm like, these guys are having fun and I'm not, I'm slaving it out, doing something I'm not really inspired by. I'm actually working uh, for someone else unsuccessfully and trying to day trade unsuccessfully at the same time. And I decided to go start what's now this business. But I remember on the plane sort of typing this out, but I also regretted the fact that I was living in a community where logistics uh, innovation was not core. Dallas-Fort Worth didn't have a strong community around uh, logistics technology uh, or even freight uh, as, a, as, a, as a business. There was no community around it. But in Chattanooga, that was, that was, per, that was pretty, uh, pretty awesome. And so when I started this business, I stayed in Fort Worth, started to, to, to build what's now Freightways, I kept hiring and coming back to Chattanooga and realizing that Chattanooga made sense for Freightways long term. Um, and that's where the idea of Freyala came about was when I started looking at all the talent, all of the businesses, the successful exit, the, you know, twice run exit that was Access America and all this dynamo that was popping up, it occurred to me that there was, there was an opportunity to really brand this. And I, I'd spent nine years in payments and Coming from the payments industry, there was this concept of Atlanta. I think 60% of the world's payments uh, go through the city of Atlanta. Yep. And they have this term called FinTech Alley down there. And what it means is it's this sort of brand that they've built in Atlanta around financial technology. And so you have these massive companies that are there, First Data, Global Payments, et cetera. And they've they built this whole community around financial or FinTech innovation. And I had ripped the term off of Freight Alley. That's how it came about was I had taken the Atlanta oh. brand of FinTech and come up with this concept called Freight Alley. I wish, in hindsight, I wish I called it Freight Valley uh, to tie into the uh, Tennessee Valley, but I, I wasn't yeah. that creative when I, when I coined it. <laughs> well, I think regardless, it's, it's stuck. Uh, I, I did not know that uh, story where, where you took inspiration from it. That's pretty cool. Um, so yeah, we we ripped off a map. I'd taken this map from FinTech Alley. You can probably Google it, and basically had a creative one of our creative folks um, uh, create a a map of all the freight and transportation companies, and we sort of indoctrinated it as Freight Alley. Yeah, and it became this branding call um, uh, for for you know for what's now this sort of idea of this community. Yeah, no, I think it, it, that that's awesome. It's it's stuck and. These days, when you talk to most people and you say Chattanooga, you don't get um, met with a bunch of hesitation and ums and ahs. So it's it certainly worked. I mean, Dynamo deserves a lot of credit. Um, I, I it's it's interesting because um, you know Dynamo was very early on. You know what? Whether it's logistic tech or freight tech, take your take your uh, sort of name, if you will, or supply chain tech for that matter. Dynamo was really the one of the first, if not the first, uh, you know, venture investor that was specifically focused on this concept. And I think you guys saw it early on, and it and it makes a lot of sense. And I think um, now we've seen how how much capital is flowing into this sector has just been tremendous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. We uh, there. There's not a week that does not go by where you have a um, a general later stage, even early stage investors who are, you know, knocking at the door saying, Hey, how do we get smart? How do you think, how do we make you think of us as you invest in the space and are looking for, uh, investment partners? But I, I, I certainly appreciate it. It, uh, it's, it's been, it's crazy to think it's been four years already. Um, but we're still in, in the early part of this journey, as you know. I mean, it's, it's been awesome to see the evolution of, of Dynamo from, you know, from the outside sort of observing it and seeing Chattanooga to come together. You know, one of the things that when we decided, when I decided to move what's now Freightways, the time wasn't called that, Chattanooga, um, 
there was, you know, I met with the mayor's office. I had met with the chamber of commerce. I'd met with a lot of the, even the executives that had been very successful in Bray. And they sort of looked at me a little strange with when I said to this, you know, this sort of describe it like, yeah, I guess that makes sense. But there was sort of this view that trucking or freight was truck drivers. And when I started to describe all of the businesses that we had that were connected to this industry, it, it, it was it was not immediate, immediately obvious to them that that was the case. But as we started to rally, what I found is it was getting, you know, whether it was, you know, the folks at Dynamo or the folks that had been a part of Access America had then gone on or people that had entered the industry uh, from another, you know, later time, sort of a, a third generation, if you will. It was interesting to sort of see the industry come together. And what was really awesome is we had, had hosted an event where we invited a lot, you know, the Chamber of Commerce, the mayor's office, a lot of city politicians and state politicians had come. And basically we laid it out where this is, this is concept of Freight Alley of this community that's in logistics. And there was this sort of desire uh, among all of the, the parties that were there to sort of create this, this, um, this industry and this community that, that is now driven a lot of the sort of brand equity for logistics in this community. And I, I am proud of that, but I, I think there's a lot of foundational reason for it. I certainly can't take credit for it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. yeah, no, for sure. For sure. And I mean, uh, I'm going to fast forward here to 2020 last week you released, was it a uh, version seven of, of sonar? If I remember right. Yeah, that's correct. It, you know, and Talk to us about it, because I think a lot of people looking outside in uh, on the freight industry might be able to like relate to a Bloomberg terminal or a Reuters station, and they might assume that you know that type of uh, sophistication is norm in freight. But until you did this, that that wasn't the case. Uh, yeah, I I think that's vi- that's that's fair. I actually would say I oftentimes get the opposite sort of view is that. Uh, people are a little surprised that there's that you can build a a data business or a uh, a, a quote unquote Bloomberg of freight. They just don't realize how important and vast this industry is. And you know, I was at a local high school uh, here in Chattanooga, uh, one of the private schools that are in Chattanooga. And I was my my son goes there, and I was talking to the kids as about what I do. Um, and one it was an eleventh grader, and these are you know these are kids with, with, um, you know, good academic backgrounds and they're probably going to, uh, you know, a, a, a really good school. But one of the kids looked at me and goes, that's cool. You're in, you're in logistics. That's a really like pretty interesting niche. And he was sort of dismissive about it. And I looked at him and I'm like, well, it's $9.6 trillion and it's 12% of global GDP. <laughs> it's, you know, if you look at the United States, it's eight and a half percent of us GDP. And if you compare that to insurance and, fi- and financial services combined is seven and a half percent. I don't think it's a niche, but I think oftentimes people look at this industry and they don't realize how dynamic it is and how volatile it is and how, how often it's changing. And I think, you know, I had had the fortune, you know, had been in the industry, but it also had spent enough time out of it to realize. And I, and I think my time in payments and FinTech had taught me how important uh, anonymized data and aggregated data was, and I and that was sort of the inspiration behind FreightWaves was to to build that, and and we certainly have had a lot of success doing it. And um, it seems natural that it should exist before we did, before we really came into it. But that just it just wasn't the case. And I think a lot of it is just timing. Yep, we were right place, right time, sort of right you know right group of people to do it. And I think um, and a little bit of luck or a lot of luck, and and it, it came together. And uh, you know uh, the the types of people now that that are using sonar, you know, brokers, uh, fleet managers. Who who are, who are the folks that now rely on this? Because I'd be curious what what they think about life pre sonar. Uh, yeah, it's a good question. Senior. Yeah, so we have about four clients that are actively using the platform uh, today, and they range from you know big box uh, e commerce retailers, big box retailers. Uh, uh, so we have shipped the shipper community, uh, folks that are dealing typically what I call high volume shippers. Um, so, you know, folks that are doing a lot of freight transactions where freight is a core piece of, of their business mm-hmm. uh, and they have a practice to manage it. Uh, we have uh, third party logistics companies. That's probably our strongest community in terms of customer base. Uh, they're effectively the day traders, whether they're trading price 
and trying to make a margin or trading capacity and trying to execute a transaction, uh, they're ultimately the day traders. For them, having data that helps them you know, deliver capacity and protect margins is important to them. And then we have carriers that do it as well. Um, we've also seen a lot of Wall Street firms uh, recently have adopted it. Um, and so we're seeing this desire of hedge funds and, and folks that are in the financial community get access to, particularly, and this is really a COVID story as much as anything, is um, when the historical models broke down and people are trying to figure out what's happening in the economy, there was this desire and awareness of how important supply chains are. And frankly, supply chain and supply chain data is the, is the most reliable indicator of the physical part of the economy, the physical goods movement of the economy. And so we've seen a lot of uptake in that. Now, we also signed FEMA uh, and some healthcare distributors during that period as well, which I'm proud of because it, you know, you, you realize that you're doing something more important than, than putting data out there, mm-hmm. news out there. You're actually, you know, hopefully helping uh, empower the supply chain and keep things uh, moving as they need to be. Yeah. No, that's awesome. I, I did not realize that. That's awesome. And, you know, the, um, so I, I was on LinkedIn, uh, last week and I picked up kind of some of the back and forth you were having around one of the indices you created, uh, the OTVI. And I'd love for you to kind of talk about it because the, the LinkedIn, I thought did a really great job talking about what it measures, why it's important. And I think a lot of listeners would love that too. Yeah. So the outbound tender volume index is basically a measurement. It's an index. And what that means is versus a, a sort of quantity, if you will, of actual numbers. An index is basically a reference to a, a point in time. And so the index measures relative to March 1st, 2018, because that was sort of the born on date of that index, the total amount of freight transactions, uh, tendered transactions in the market. Now, tender is an electronic message, a request from a shipper to a carrier. And what we've gone out and done is measured those actual message flows. And uh, we've been able to quantify, which we've now turned into an index, how many transactions uh, are, how many load requests are actually out there. And what that data does is it tells us how many loads uh, are actually moving through the economy. And frankly, as if I were to show this uh, chart, I would describe this as you get to see the physical goods movement of the economy. When you see that OTBI chart, you're actually looking at the U.S. economy in near real time. You know, it's painted within the past 24 hours. And I think it became really important during COVID because we were seeing the economy play out right in front of our, I mean, we see it every day, but oftentimes it's like a heart monitor. It's just, you know, you'll see normal seasonality and some small changes and variants, but during the COVID crash, the COVID surge slash then the COVID crash and then the sort of, I don't even know what you call that, the recovery uh, uh, surge, um, we got to see a lot of movement in that index. And what it's telling us is that the U.S. economy, the industrial economy, the freight economy is actually much stronger than some of the broader data would suggest. Mm. And, And because it's in, you know, near real time with the past 24 hours, it's able to predict a lot of the things that are starting to show up in, you know, some of the lagging data. Uh, and that's what we're seeing now. And so, I, I mean, from where I sit, the U.S. economy is in much better shape than, than I think a lot of people realize. And it's in much better shape than what are the, some of the uh, industrial data, economic, you know, government data would suggest. And it, I think it just shows the resilience of what's happening with our economy in spite of the fact that parts of our economy are completely shut down. Yeah. It's it's interesting you say that because the, the one of the real obvious things for me coming in, not having worked at a brokerage or in logistics uh, prior to Dynamo, was just that like we're talking about the backbone of the global economy, and it just felt like a no brainer that there had to be a specialist fund, and technology was changing the world, and it kind of really came together naturally. And, and now, yeah, as, as we discuss it, it, it's coming together for others. But this, this OTVI index, like I think your team does a weekly recap, like that's something that, that I read every week. And it also has a cousin, right? The OTRI? 
Yeah, so the outbound tenant, so one measures a volume of transactions and one measures what we call rejections. And that's a, it's a function of capacity. So what it's measuring is, what trucking companies do, they tend to, very similar to what the airlines do, is they overbook. It, you know, they're trying to optimize their utilization. And mm-hmm. to do that, at times, they have to, over, they take, they commit to more freight than they can actually handle because they know that um, at times those sh- certain shippers won't live up to commitments and others will surge it. So they tend to overbook capacity. Um, and so what happens, and because there's always this push pull between supply and demand in the market, uh, there's always an imbalance. And so what we realized is that if you, if you sort of want to understand the state of the uh, freight economy, you have to understand the what's happening between the high volume shippers, shippers that are moving a lot of freight, and the large carriers, the large fleets. They're the they're the ones that actually set the tone of the market. So, example is companies uh, like Schneider and Warner and JB Hunt and US Express and Covenant, etc. They're you know and they're in this sort of big class of of carriers. Inter, we call them enterprise classes. They, they tend to have first right of refusal on, on freight that they're allocated. And even in a, in a down recession, the shippers are reluctant to pull uh, loads from them because they're afraid that that capacity won't be there, that trader pull won't be there if things come back. And so by tracking those tender rejections, the companies, the carriers that are in the routing guide that are committed to those shippers and we look at that tender rejection uh, in a percent of loads, by tracking it, we can actually determine whether the market is hot or soft, whether there's more demand for freight than there are trucks, um, or whether there's more freight than there are uh, trucks. And so by, by measuring the balance of supply and demand, we're able to figure out What's what's happening? And I think it's not so much that the actual numbers is important uh, as it is the direction of that index. Because if you start to see that uh, OTRI index or that rejection index go down, it means that capacity is loosening. And if that rejection rate goes up, it means that capacity is tightening. And so if you're a broker, that means you're likely to have to pay more for capacity. It also probably means you have more opportunity for price to charge a higher price. Uh, and likewise, if it's going down, then you have more opportunity to respond to that. I think, you know, I, I, I know, Santosh, you're a, a student of the financial markets uh, like me. You know, a lot, of, a lot of what we're seeing is sort of money ball meets flash boys of, you know, it's the data itself, but it's also the speed at which you have that data that's really important. So if you have data and you know what's happening in the market before your competitors do, and, and most freight's pretty undifferentiated. You know, most mm-hmm. freight brokerages, you know, they may have some niche specialties that they focus on that's different than others. But for the vast majority of brokers, it's all pretty standardized, commoditized stuff. Yep. And so it's the, the advantage that a broker has over another broker is, is obviously relationship, but it's also the transparency, the awareness of what's happening, how fast information is flowing to them. And so having that information before your competitor gives you an enormous edge on A, securing the load and B, pricing it appropriately. And that's sort of the idea behind the data that we do at Sonar. And then we granulize it based on all sorts of different series, including geography, mode, et cetera. Yeah. And, you know, I'd be curious, what, what is your thinking? Um, the the economic readings for Q2 are backward looking, but they were, I think, very expected, uh, really weak. Um, but I'd be curious, like, what do you think looking ahead? Uh, the macro economy still has clouds over it. The freight markets are super healthy. Um, you know, we're, we're seeing a, a great July when it's seasonally um, pretty slow. How should we kind of reconcile this and, and have an opinion of the future here? I mean, I'm very bullish, and I have been since uh, since mid-April. I mean, people may not people may not know this or, or aware of it, but I was actually pretty pretty bearish in March, um, even at the peak, um, because these cycles are, are. If you've been in it long enough, you start to recognize cycles, and um, it was apparent to me that when the economy shut down, things were going to do it. But when we saw in mid-April 
um, when we saw things come that it, once I, once it became apparent that what was going to shut down was shut down. And at some point the economy had to go online and we, and I started to look at that OTVI index and we did channel checks as well. So this isn't just data, but we're doing a, a bunch of other work because we have journalists and analysts yep. that are studying this stuff. And what it, what it became apparent was that it wasn't getting progressively worse in mid-April. And it was like, okay, I've, I'm pretty comfortable with the bottom is near. And from that point on, I've been bullish and, and, and saying that we're going to have a strong V-shaped recovery in freight. Now, that doesn't mean government data. And frankly, there's, there is a disconnect between the GDP number and the freight uh, economy mm-hmm. in the sense that a lot of the GDP number is tied to services um, that have nothing to do with freight movement. And so if you really want to know what's happening in freight, you sort of have to look at GDP as a general indicator. But in the COVID world, that model doesn't work very well because it's measuring things that don't move freight. And so because of that, I think you have to just sort of look at GDP and sort of put that aside and start to look for other sort of sources of data that can give you an alternative view. And I would say what we've seen, you're correct. Not only have we seen that bounce from April continue through July, real strong indicators, I don't see any reason why that won't continue at least through the rest of the year. And the reason I would say that I'm bullish is if you look at the import data, the stuff that's going through the ports, is we're seeing record activity at the ports. We're seeing intermodal operators not able to respond um, to to all of the the freight that's going through there. We're seeing a lot of the ocean uh, liners are are dealing with back um, sort of a – uh, uh, you know, the, a lot of demand in their uh, uh, markets. So in the domestic freight market move. And then sort of anecdotal, so that's where we're at right now in terms of data. All the data is very, very bullish. Anecdotally, I don't know if you've tried to buy furniture for your house or, you know, I, I'm, we're trying to put a pull up here and I, I talked to my, you know, he's talking about it being a nine to 12 month uh, lead before you can put a pull in. Wow. Um and it's and it's not just pools. I mean, you you try to do anything, buy a boat, go get a trampoline, anything that that is that does not require that's an activity that does not require other people to be a part of it. You try to buy those items, you can't do it. I mean, look at the residential housing market mm-hmm. right now. And I'm not talking about cities like New York and San Francisco that have seen rent declines, but you know, here in Chattanooga, yeah, I'm like not, here. Yeah, I mean. Every real estate agent I know is talking about how just like you can't get a lot if you wanted to build something because they're just not available. There's no inventory and houses, you know, the, the cadence of how fast the inventory is moving is insane. And I think a lot of that's driving sort of this other part of the economy. And I, I personally believe it's the federal government and the amount of money that they printed into mm-hmm. our economy that's actually doing all this. Yep. Yep. Yeah, um, a, a lot of the policy and, and, and there might be another boatload of money that's dropped onto the economy. Um, it's it's creating liquidity and liquidity needs to go somewhere. <laughs> I mean, you think about the fact that our between the Fed and Congress is basically already in one quarter has already issued, printed, if you will, however you describe it. Um, as much money as the annu- as the entire annual budget of the federal government they put into our economy, that's insane mm-hmm. amount of money. And that money flows through and it drives, you know, there's a multiplier effect. So what's actually happening is all that money's flowing through here. People are spending it and they're spending it and they're buying physical goods. They're not, they're not buying concert tickets. They're not traveling on airplanes. Yep. They may not be visiting Disney World and going to sporting events, but they're buying, you know, they're they're certainly spending money on things that they they can enjoy. Yep. Yeah, that's right. I'd be curious though at at, at what point do they need to start thinking about how they lap all the liquidity out? Um cuz it hasn't it hasn't necessarily been the traditional QE approach, right? I think uh they that they've coined this as a MMT these days. You got it, man. I was going to say, <laughs> and I, you know, you, you have to look at it and there hasn't been any quote unquote repercussions in the financial markets. Um, you know, we don't see a, a we don't see a, a destabilization yet of the U S currency. 
um, we're not seeing a situation where um, the stock market, the equity markets are reacting, even the debt markets are liquid. So when you look at that and you say, what is the sort of downfall? Like politicians effectively care about two things, right? Getting reelected and not having scandals or repercussions that, that, that could haunt them. And right now, I think everybody is in the MMT camp. And there's an argument for like UBI. I mean, I don't want to get political. I know this isn't the purpose of this conversation, but it's actually a solid argument for what Andrew Yang suggested, which yeah. is that universal basic income of going to people. And you think about that, getting, getting highly affluent people of money doesn't really move the economy. $1,000 in, in and someone who makes a million dollars a year isn't, isn't going to change their spending habits. But to, you know, to, to someone who's living on a paycheck paycheck, that's a, it's far more valuable. So, yeah, no, that's right. That's right. I, I and I, I've said this to a few people, but I, I don't think we're going to see the repercussions now. I think what we've done is uh, perhaps seed uh, the debt bubble or, or the, or the credit bubble and a credit driven recession in you know, three to five years time. Cause that's just kind of how it always happens. Loose money in one cycle uh, leads to credit problems in the next cycle. So let's see where we end up. Yeah, we'll see. Um, but I'd be uh, curious, like shifting gears a bit, um, you know, we, we have a uh, class of venture-backed digital freight brokers. <laughs> um, I, I'd like to think that maybe this year uh, or, or coming into this year, uh, they're thinking about kind of maturation and, and what they look like as companies. But I'd be curious before I get into that, like where are we on this journey of digitizing freight brokerage? Because like the model I use is, uh, phase one is digitization, phase two is optimization, phase three is automation. And I'd be curious kind of what, what your thoughts are around all this. Yeah, I think it's, it's probably optimization if you had to pick between those. So, you know, digitization is sort of a, a, a very loose term for, it can mean everything from just having an app mm-hmm. uh, with humans that run it, which is really sort of the first generation of brokers, of digital brokers. I think now we're seeing computers sort of take over a lot of the decisioning. Yep. Um, and and you see it you see it with you know the big the, certainly the big companies. You see some early stage startups doing it. Um, and then you, you so so I think we're in that optimization stage, if you will. Um, it's going to be very hard to move into the fully autonomous sort of decisioning. Um, I, I I think what's going to be interesting and and look I. I you know, in terms of disclosure, I'm a part of I have equity in U.S. Express. My family started it, and I. But I'm, I'm, I'm I would be my brother's biggest critic if there was one. I won't do it publicly to to avoid the, his just undermining what he's doing. But I actually thought what U.S. Express did, and it didn't it didn't occur to me till this week. What they're doing is a really interesting concept, and so they rolled out this new fleet, and he did it sort of in pilot and in almost stealth mode. In fact. I knew pieces of it, but not a ton about it, where it's basically they've created this whole new fleet inside of U.S. Express that's completely separated from their core operations. He basically said, I can't fix the this asset-based trucking business. I can't fix the model that's been broken for 20 years. And it has been. I think uh, U.S. Express, among others, has had a lot of struggles with their solo OTR fleet. I think a lot of trucking companies has. U.S. Express has been one of the worst operators in that solo OTR business. Um, and he couldn't fix it. And he basically came to the realization, watching what was happening with digital brokers, that you could take the best of, of that technology, the matching technology, the optimization, the decisioning, and put it into an asset-based operation. But you could not use the existing driver pool or operating process to do it. And so what he did was, is they actually just created a fleet from scratch that was entirely based on this digital world. But the advantages they have over the freight brokers is they have forced dispatch. A digital freight broker can't force a a driver to do anything. They have to incent them to take the loads. They have to effectively create a marketplace. And I would have been cynical, you know, uh, even weeks ago about could a asset-based carrier 
pull off a digital experience. But I would say, and I don't know if US Express will be long-term successful, certainly the early iterations and data suggest it will. But I think that's a really interesting concept on the idea that, that an asset-based carrier that has the advantage of forced dispatch can actually implement a digital matching solution, recruiting a different type of driver that will accept a forced dispatch from a computer and not a human. Mm-hmm. That creates, we're starting to move into a world where autonomous decisioning could very well be ahead of us or uh, upon us. And it's going to be those types of environments that are going to be more promising than what you would see with, with some of the digital freight brokers. Now, I think what we'll see in digital freight brokers world is I think there'll be a couple standouts. You know, Convoy deserves a lot of credit. Uber Freight deserves credit. JV Hunt 360 deserves a ton of credit. All those will be super successful as freight brokers. And they're going to put a lot of pressure on the traditional freight brokers that are out there. Um, but I, and I wouldn't have believed this is the case. I, I never would have said, I always said that the asset-based guys are going to get destroyed by the digital, you know, auto, the autonomous world is going to end up destroying the, the, the asset-based carriers. Yep. I'm, I actually believe that if you can take the advantages of digital matching and optimization and you, you implement it in a forced dispatch environment, then you have what you have the groundwork for a potential autonomous fleet at some point in the future that you you then can make that uh, that that leap uh, quite easy. And I think what will happen is the digital brokers will be will be able to really optimize a lot of the froth that's in the freight brokerage business and these digital asset operators. And there will be more. And there's others that are working on it. The digital operators will end up also. Uh, being able to solve it. And I think what will end up happening is the broad, all those carriers that don't, that haven't made those investments will be out of business. Mm. I, and would you say though, um, like the, uh, the, the US Express approach with, with Variant, as more asset-based carriers adopt that, right? And, and, and to your point, they're able to better manage the supply because they can force dispatch um, the uh, tractor I'd be curious though, like how would they manage just their trucking supply? Because right now, even the the big issue is when things are really good, everybody goes out, puts more orders in, and then the cycle flips and you're sitting with glut and rates reflect that because of the supply demand. Does this maybe solve that and, and allows you to use data to grow and shrink your fleet in a more measured approach? I think there's that. I think what it does is it makes those trucks that are run. So let's talk about two things. One is the, the the freight brokers will always have a role in the freight business because of that boom and bust cycle is that there's just never enough trucks to match the number of loads. There's not enough loads at certain times to match the number of trucks. It's just this balance of, in, of supply and demand. And the issue is an asset-based carrier can only is only going to grow to a point where they can handle that freight. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, those things are always true. Um, I, I think, and, and so that will always be the case. And I think that's why you'll have this sort of bifurcation of the industry of the digital freight brokers and sort of these digital native fleets. And it's interesting because um, what will end up happening is those fleet, those digital fleets, will have an advantage over, over those non-digital fleets of being able to be far more profitable, hire drivers, perhaps pay them better, but give them better quality of life. And in return, become a destination company uh, because they're able to be more efficient or able to put more uh, more miles on these trucks. And I think that's that's a, that's what that potentially promises for our industry. It's an, it's Look, I, I think at the end of the day, it's a really interesting time for the industry um, because we are seeing as you've, as you, I think we're, as you described it, is this have and have nots that's starting to play out is, um, and, I, and I do think it's going to be a situation where we have the, you know, the, the big guys, the really enterprise class carriers that can invest millions of dollars in technology can very well do what US Express did. I don't think, I don't think they're going to have a, a monopoly on that in any way. Um, and may even be at, over, you know, a couple cycles, or a couple of years, may even be more efficient or better. Mm-hmm. But but there's going to be, and then you have the owner operators are going to sort of flock towards the digital brokers. 
but you're gonna have an you're gonna have a, a an eating out of the middle. Like, how does a mid fleet that can't afford the technology innovations really compete against the digital guys on the asset side? Yeah, and then how does the so 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 it just it strikes me as they either have to they're gonna end up working for the convoys of the world or they're gonna end up getting displaced by you know these digital fleets. And I, I just think that's a really interesting thing. We've seen it in other markets where you've seen it in community banking. You know, when when internet banking came about, there's been massive consolidation in community banks with banks that have technology, the big, big banks that are gonna you can buy their ways into these businesses. Yep. And then the small community banks that may have focus on a couple of niches or some relationships, but the mid-sized banks just get, they get eaten up by the big guys. Mm-hmm. We've seen this in our own backyard. I mean, SunTrust is no yeah. longer SunTrust. <laughs> That's right. And that was a big bank. You know, it was a top 50 bank and it's no longer. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That That is an interesting analog to draw. And, you know, I'm going to shift gears here um, and, and kind of get into building uh, as, as you're scaling your organization taking a step back, like what has been the biggest lesson so far as you built freight waves? Like if you have to pick oh. one thing, <laughs> man, you, you, it's, you know, lessons are, are gosh, I mean, it's always team. It, it's, you know, capital raising is important. I think, you know, if you're going to raise capital, networking is key. And I think, I think you have to deal with that level of, of sort of rejection of sorts. And you have to realize it's not personal. Um, you know, um, I, I think oftentimes, uh, you know, a lot of it's timing. And I think for us, we, we didn't have a rigid business model when we first set out to be what is now Freightways. I mean, we set out to do a futures market based on trucking, which you know, if we were still a futures market based on trucking and that was our only idea, we would have, we would be out of business. We would have generated $130 in revenue from the time we started. So when I look at that and say, you have to be open, you have to pivot. And I think, and you have to be malleable and respond to the opportunities in the moment. I think that's been sort of the story of freight waves is that, you know, we've effectively gone out. We had one idea that, that took a while to sort of come together that's still not successful, and that's our futures market. We sort of we sort of capitalized on this sort of emerging I- idea of of blockchain, which has now become digitization. Um, we ended up creating a media outlet because we found it difficult to get any of the traditional freight media outlets to sort of carry our story. Mm-hmm. We ended up creating, it and it's become our business model. Um, I don't know. I think it's the malleable flexibility you have as an entrepreneur. You have to sort of uh, even though you may have loved a business concept when you started your business and that might've been the idea, I think ultimately you have to be malleable and responsive to the time. And as you grow your business, um, you're going to have opportunities and you need the discipline to see those, but you also need the discipline to realize which ones are going to really catapult you. Yeah. And you know, what, what has it been like? Like how do you balance leading and helping build a data business on one side of the house and then a media business on the other side of the house. Cause there is definitely like a left brain, right brain type thing there. <laughs> no, it's true. I look, I, I think if we had ri- rolled out a data business without a media business, most of the data sets, it would have been very difficult for us to acquire customers. And the reason is that our media business really, what it does is two things successfully for our data business. One is, it brings a lot of this data and gives it context. And, and what I mean by that is because of the, the fact that we're able to talk about these data sets on a daily basis, whether it's our video or in our text uh, or just these, you know, whatever opportunity we have to sort of commercialize it or evangelize it, we're able to do that through our media business because there's, we're constantly putting out information. I think Bloomberg, you know, oftentimes people say, what's, you know, what's sort of the inspiration behind freight waves and, Ted Alien actually sent this book to me when I first started it, um, or when we were started got got going with our our financial markets business. He sent me Bloomberg on Bloomberg, and I think that's been my biography. Uh, I've just created sort of truckified it, if you will. Mm-hmm. But really, if you look, if you ever watch Bloomberg TV, 
they'll be telling a story and they don't run a lot of B-roll. Like, like CNBC runs a lot of B-roll and B-roll is basically footage, right? Where if you're talking about a truck, uh, an autonomous truck or convoy, or Dan Lewis is on there talking about convoy, they're, they're showing his technology or him in a truck, right? And that's B-roll. If we're talking about Chattanooga, it's the, you know, the fly over the aquarium and, and, and all that stuff. Yeah. But on Bloomberg, it's different. They don't do a lot of that. What they do is they show the Bloomberg charts. They show charts from the Bloomberg terminal. Mm. And what they're doing is they're actually evangelizing and creating this sort of Pavlov response to data where they're able to bring a lot of context to their data and inform the user or read or the viewer a reader if it's print. Um, and, I, and I think that's been important for a data business. And so when we go to market, we go to market, you know, our investors and you're a venture investor, you can appreciate this. VCs don't like media companies. I, I mean, that may not be a, that may be a secret your audience isn't aware of, but v- venture capitalists do not like media companies. Um, and they're just, and, and the reasons are that Google and Facebook and the minds of a venture investor are very hard to compete with and rightfully so. So, they don't want to invest in media businesses. But I, I think what we've been able to do is use our media business to, in, to engage and evangelize our data and inform and create a conversation around these data sets that I don't think we could do if we didn't have a media business. And then what it also does is it creates customer acquisition opportunities that make it very organic. And, and I think the thing that I'm, I'm proud of uh, in this last round, is that our media business is at is growing as fast as our SaaS business, and has almost, I mean, within one percent of the same margins as our SaaS business. Does. Wow! So you have this, you have this seventy plus percent media business and margins that it's growing. And the thing about media is, there's a lot of fixed costs and high, high, con- you know, you're talking ninety plus percent contribution um, uh, margins. So as it scales, it becomes more profitable. Yep. Growing at the speed of our data business, and they're both growing together, and I think it creates a symbiotic opportunity. And frankly, it, it takes all of our cust- customer acquisition costs and makes them almost negative. Where What I mean by that is we have negative CAC. We actually have, when we give our investors our, our, our KPIs, we paint, paint two numbers. One is our, our CAC as a gen- sort of someone would generally define it. And then what we call adjusted CAC, which is, sort of net CAC, after you take the margins and, and profits made in media, what's your actual customer acquisition cost for your data business? Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. It makes it's, it makes a lot of sense, though, because there, there's a flywheel effect there. Yeah, for sure. For sure. It, it It's worked. It's, it is difficult. I wouldn't say difficult. When we when we went out to Silicon Valley, um, we actually found that investor investors didn't, didn't necessarily because the model is different enough, people just don't understand it. Um, and so it was sort of a lot of the VCs just, it takes a, a sort of a leap, if you will. Whereas if you go to New York, this model has been played out for decades. I mean, they've seen it with Reuters. They've seen it with Bloomberg. They've seen it with s and You know, a lot of those companies at one point, you know, S&P was a publisher. Mm-hmm. Was, S&P was a publisher. And I don't think a lot of people realize that. So... Um, that's where they got their start. We just happened to compress that really within two years. Yeah. So, you know, freight waves aside, um, with your trucker hat on here, <laughs> um, if if a founder listening um, was looking for an area to um, build a business in and trucking using technology, where would you point them? Where should they be sniffing around? You know, it's it, that's a that's so many things. So many issues in the industry. I think ultimately, um, you want to look for where can you get quick adoption. Uh, I mean, the thing about any type of technology in this business uh, is is if you're if you're going to start a company, you want to have something that you can get it into market and commercialize quickly. And so, in our space, the first adopters, the fastest adopters, are the third party logistics companies. And the reason is that they effectively don't own any assets at all, except maybe their furniture and computers. They don't have a lot of fixed costs except their personnel costs. And so everything they're doing is trying to get an edge 
in terms of putting more freight into the market and price it more efficiently. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in doing that, they're, they're much more uh, willing and open and looking for things that can accelerate the, the volume of transactions they're handling uh, and it help them protect or expand their margins. And so I think a lot of, and you'll see this with a lot of the uh, successful scaled freight tech companies, a lot of them, particularly in so- the software businesses, their first set of customers and their most successful set of customers in their early iterations are selling into that 3PL community. So if you can find something that 3PLs will adapt, even if your long-term plan is to have perhaps move into the supply chain world and, and do things for shippers, or uh, perhaps it's to do stuff for carriers, you're sort of a really nice beachhead is that 3PL community because those those companies are um, are really really opening o- open to trying new things and um, and frankly have money you know money and budget to spend on technologies that can help them improve things and I think if I were to to really suggest anybody that's starting out is you know you want to find customers that that will write you checks and those are that's an easy uh, a group of folks to get into. Uh, they tend to be younger, run by younger management teams, so they're more open to ideas and concepts. And then you can sort of migrate your business towards a different part of the industry. Yep. Yep. Well, with that, Craig, we've uh, we're kind of traversed a lot of topics here. Appreciate you uh, coming on, and uh, hopefully uh, we can all kind of return to normalcy sometime soon so we could see you around town. Yeah, Sintosh, appreciate it. And, and really, congratulations um, on Dynamo's success. I, uh, like I said, I, I, when I first saw it, um, I was on the outside looking in, so a little jealous of, uh, of how much fun you guys were having. Um, but it's awesome to see what you guys are doing for this industry and this community. Yeah, I certainly appreciate it. And uh, we continue to uh, be a cheerleader here as you continue to... Uh, do your thing and bring sonar to the masses. <laughs> Appreciate Santosh. Thank you uh, for the time today. Yeah. Cheers. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a five-star review and tell us what you liked and be sure to head over to podcast.dynamo.vc to keep up to date with our latest content or subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice until next time.